Good morning. It's Sunday, November 29th. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Welcome once again to this online resource as we're transitioning from pandemic stay-at-home orders to more and more opportunities to worship together in an outdoor setting at Redeemer Lutheran Church. You can follow along with the prompts on the screen or download a PDF copy of today's service to print off at home and follow along that way. Either way, I wish you God's blessings today as we begin our Advent journey towards Christmas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we await your coming to our world. Bring us the gift of salvation. Lord, you are hope and healing for our world. Come now and bring us your good news. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come with us on earth, here to dwell. Rouse us from sleep, wake us from our slumber. Banish the darkness of night. Child of the light and love beyond all telling, fill our hearts with wonder and praise. Let us pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come. Protect us by your strength and save us from the threatening dangers of our sins. 
For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. God's people urgently and humbly beg him to come and save. Today's reading is Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 to 9, and this reading is the basis for today's sermon. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies, and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the answer to the prayer, Hosanna, save us. The Holy Gospel today is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. As they approached Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went, and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered just as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. You all know exactly what it means when someone shouts, Don't just stand there. Do something. It means usually something's wrong and needs action, and maybe you could take some sort of action to help the situation at hand. For an example, in an emergency, the something you might do would be to take out your iPhone because now you can call for help. Of course, you could also take out your iPhone and update your Facebook status or check your voicemail or play a more, couple more rounds of a game. And that would technically be doing something. But of course, you know, that wouldn't be the something that people mean when they say, don't just stand there, do something. They mean a particular kind of something for the real need at hand. Now, today's reading from Isaiah chapter 64 is 
one of those cries for help. It's an anguished cry to God. Don't just stand there, Lord. Do something. But, you know, we have to realize, of course, there's nothing all that remarkable about a simple cry for divine action. People instinctively cry out to a higher power of some kind whenever trouble arises. But what's remarkable about this reading, though, is that the people of the true and living God aren't merely asking for just some kind of generic divine action. Anyone can do that. They're doing the harder and more fruitful act of asking God to act according to their honest need and according to his sovereign purpose. When they say, do something, Lord, they mean a particular something. Act on our honest need and according to your sovereign purpose. The book of Isaiah was written, of course, in a real historical setting. The people had faced the destruction of their capital city, the slaughter of their children, and forced exile in a foreign land. It was rough, very difficult. So when Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you, all of that, that's a prayer from the people saying, God, if you would just do something to our enemies, they'd be like dust in the wind. You'd snap them like twigs. Now, there's a common assumption you have to realize about the Old Testament that's often repeated again and again by uh, critics that appear on you know, History Channel specials or who write chart-topping books, and, and they'll say that the Old Testament really is just a bunch of patriotic writings of a, of a jingoistic nation convinced that they were the best nation and their God was the best God that this was basically a lot of make Israel great again kind of populism. And critics like that look at these verses and say, you know, this is just nothing more than some chest thumping and saying, you know, my God could beat up your God if he wanted. But I want you to notice the next few verses too. This isn't just some nationalistic fever. They, Isaiah writes, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. As I said before, there's nothing all that remarkable about asking for divine intervention. Indeed, that's why so many critics dismiss much of the Bible. They say, well, it's just something everyone does. They just cry out to their favorite God. But these central verses of Isaiah's poem do that harder and more fruitful work of asking, why should such a great God as the Lord even hear us? Why should he intervene for us when we are such sinful people? There's no patriotic fervor here. There's no... We're the good ones who deserve blessing, and they're the bad ones who don't. Now, these are verses that cope with the troubling conditional. If we ask God to do something, then he'll have to do something about us. Once there was a newspaper who posed the question, what's wrong with the world? And they asked their readers to write in their responses. And 
There was an English writer and Christian theologian named G.K. Chesterton, and he is said to have written the following letter to the editors of the newspaper in response. Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. If you ask most people, whether secular or religious, what's the problem with the world, the answer will usually be some form of they are, isn't it? Well, it's them. It's that political group, that ethnic group, that economic class, that person who made that policy, that person who made that decision. People like that, people of that age, they are. But those who have grasped the Christian message woven through the entire Bible and so eloquently articulated by Isaiah here today will answer as G.K. Chesterton did. The answer is, I am. Now that problem runs so deep in us that it's not just our frequent wrongdoing that provokes just the anger of a holy God, a just response to wrongdoing. It's even that what we'd otherwise consider to surely be in our favor. Even our righteous deeds, what we think are the good ones, the Bible says here today, are like filthy rags because they're tainted. They're tainted by self-serving motives and purposes. And we've got to let that sink in. These verses really have to sink in today. Isaiah here, in the face of intense violence and stinging injustice, says, Lord, I want you to do something about that, because that's not right. But even more, I want you to do something about me. And we offer the same prayer. Lord, I want you to do something about me. About my persistent desire that life be bent to my whims. I want you to do something about my constant need to glorify my own name instead of yours. I want you to do something about my apathy toward your will and purposes when it comes up against what I would like to have done or the purposes I would like to see done. I want you to do something about my aggravated assault against your creation and the holiness you intended for all mankind. See, Isaiah is asking for more. He's crying out. He's aching for something, for a Savior, just as we are. Hosanna. The word means save us. And God has heard that plea, and he's answered our prayers. He has rent the heavens open. He's come down. God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. He has brought the fire that consumes the kindling and vaporizes every impurity. He has caused the earth to quake and the mountains to tremble. But not in just, holy, righteous wrath against us but rather in willing payment for the penalty our sins have incurred. On the cross, God acted according to your honest need and mine. As the guilt of your every sin and the false motives of your every righteous act was transferred to Jesus, the earth shook, the mountains quaked, and the problem with the world was no longer they are. The, no, the, the answer wasn't even anymore I am. The problem with the world, in that moment, we could all say it was he, it was Jesus. Because he stood in our place. He stood as if he were the sinner. 
and the cost for such a stunning reversal was the cursed death of the Son of God. His death was a divine intervention so remarkable that the beams and lintels of the universe itself quaked with the surging of God's infinite love for you. You are his, and he is yours. And now that you are his and he is yours, God continues to act according to his sovereign purpose. He's, he's given you, he's done what you and I need, and now he continues to work. And this is how Isaiah describes it. You, O Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Those verses here are are a remarkable acknowledgement that the one who does the saving is also the one who does the shaping. Now, in the religious waters we swim in here in the United States, there's a sense that the way Christianity works is this. You get on God's good side somehow, usually by demonstrating your unwavering allegiance to Team Jesus, some show of loyalty, some leap of faith, whatever it might be. In, in charismatic churches, it takes an altar call or two, maybe even speaking in tongues. In political circles, it's about expressing moral indignation at the state of affairs. On social media, it can be as simple as using the hashtag blessed. No matter the form, the basic thinking is this. Now that I'm on God's side, God enters the story of my life and brings it to my dream version of happily ever after. God, the creator of all things, submits himself to my sovereign purpose is the way we often think of it. But friends, this is completely backwards. It's about as backwards, it's, I mean, it's as backwards as it can be. This is what many have called in this day and age, they call it cultural Christianity. Basically, it's religious lip service. You kind of do the motions, like a, like a cultural motion, in an attempt to butter up, you know, an easily flattered deity so he'll intervene on your behalf. It's a New Testament form of what critics think they find in the Old Testament, actually. Basically, my God can do things your God can't for me. And faithful Christians must see this and we must reject it. Because the God of this kind of cultural Christianity, he's just a sugar daddy. He's not a father. The God of cultural Christianity is a, is a porter to carry our bags, not a potter who shapes our life. The God of cultural Christianity is not the God who died on the cross for the sins of the world. He's the one that just steps in and coaches you to your best life now. And Isaiah acknowledges the truth that you cannot receive the work of the Savior without also being the work of his hands. You and I cannot receive the work of the Savior without also being the work of his hands. If you are forgiven by Jesus, then you are his people. And if you are his people, then you are his clay. He does the shaping. He does the molding. And he does so according to his purposes, not ours. The clay does not tell to the potter what shape it must be. And if I'm honest, that's, that's not usually pleasant to go through that, you know, because I'm perfectly fine, if I had my way, for God to rend the heavens open and help me out. But I will howl and protest if he rends my schedule in the process. I'm happy to see him spend his every energy and relinquish every treasure to bring me into his kingdom, but I will draw the line if he asks me to spend too much of my own time and treasure on extending the kingdom to others. 
I am glad to pump my fist in the air when the Lord's consuming anger over evil catches wrongdoing in its fire, but I'll do anything to avoid pounding my fist on my chest in heartfelt repentance. But for as long as I cling to my purposes in this life, I'm loosening my grip on the Lord who rent the universe apart to come down to a cross of wood and a crown of thorns to rescue me from myself. The more difficult yet ultimate truth is this. When we ask God to save us, we also ask him to shape us. And the God who saves us by the cross also shapes us by the cross. He doesn't just round out your life. He restores it. And it is shaped like a cross. Suffering and hardship, yes, but pointing toward a greater reward. Martin Luther once said, I have held many things in my hands and have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Friends, the beautiful thing is our, our entire life is in the hands of God. He's shaping it. He's molding it. Perhaps not the way you'd prefer right now, but most certainly the way that leads to life beyond all expectation, joy beyond all telling. Hosanna, save us. Amen. Now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Come, dear Savior, we long for your appearing. Come to cheer us with your promises as you once cheered your ancient people throughout their long night of waiting and watching. Come to restore our hope. Rouse us from the slumber of despair. Lift our hearts from petty, earthbound goals and direct our eyes above from where you will soon come to make all things right again. Come and work in us a godly grief and a genuine sorrow over sin. Forgive us for the shameful way we have dishonored you and the shabby way we have dealt with one another. Through your mighty words, stir up in us a ceaseless yearning to give ourselves to others as you have given yourself to us. Come also to rekindle our joy as we prepare to celebrate your first coming. Do not permit a frenzied busyness to rob us of your peace or to deprive us of times to ponder and to wonder at your word. Set our hearts apart from the bustle and the clamor and the jostle of these days. Fill us with the quiet delight of finding you in the manger and keep hearts and minds undisturbed by the great throng that streams by uncaring. We pray also for those enduring great sorrow, for those undergoing spiritual trial, and for those whose restless hearts have no knowledge of your coming. Comfort, strengthen, and illumine them with the sweet peace born of your love, and keep them in the way of peace by your holy word. Come quickly, dear Lord, and fill our longing eyes with the light of your coming. We wait. We keep watch, and in you we put our hope. Amen. The Lord's Prayer Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Amen.